Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Fall apart, I'll burn all my time Riding shopping carts and pass out alone In the alleyway, I got a couple mixtures I'll gladly take Pick me up, the sun is gone I don't hear your voice, I'll be running for You won't see me now ever again You'll start wondering what you never said Look around, I'ma fall apart I'll burn all my time Riding shopping carts and pass out alone In the so that pretty well describes my weekend, mainly the shopping cart part. Um, so we're, we're going to do Ask or Tell Me Anything, which means you can call 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. And how would I put this into words? Ask or tell me anything. Uh, and I am going to put out a topic at the beginning. And then Keith from Torrington, uh, I'm eager to talk to you. But let me just, and the reason I have to play this song I had this experience, as some of you know, on social media, on Facebook this weekend. And I don't really know exactly what I was thinking at the time, but um, <laughs> although if I had it, to do all, had it all to do all over again, I would probably do the same thing. But okay, I have to go back to Saturday. Saturday, I'm in the parking lot of Big Y, and I load my groceries into the car. And there's a woman walking by, and she looks over to me, and she goes, are you going to leave the cart there? And I thought, I thought she wanted my cart because it was a demi cart, you know, the cart that isn't as big as the other carts. And sometimes those are in short supply because I think the supermarkets don't want you to have them because they want you to fill up the big cart. Anyway, I said, sure, yeah, I am. And then she sort of looked at me. She gave me this really, she glared at me. That would be the, she gave me, she gave me the stink eye. That's what she did. And I realized that I was being cart shamed. And, and so I thought about this for 24 hours. And I mean, brood about it, but I thought about it. And I thought, you know, it's kind of, I did talk to Michael Schur, the creator of Parks and Rec and The Good Place, about this very question. It's in his book about moral philosophy. And it's, you know, it's more complicated than people make it seem, I think. So, because I mean, I think there are, I, so anyway, what I did, I, uh, on Sunday morning, I put up a post on Facebook. Now, I have a rather large Facebook presence I was an early adopter of Facebook. I have the maximum 5,000 friends, and then I have 6,700 followers. And so um, so I put up this post. I'm just going to even read it to you. I wrote, I got cart shamed yesterday at Big Y. I unloaded my bags. Well, I told the whole story. I'll skip over that part. Um, and then I said, is this a clear moral violation? I mean, sometimes we get out of our car and are pleased to discover the cart that we want nearby. We grab it. We head inside. Or am I even now trying to justify the unjustifiable with my weasel words? So that's the way it started. And I just want to say, I want to bracket this also by saying, I'm like about a 50-50 person in terms of returning the cart to a cart corral, as they call it, the cart corral, kamatai yippee, uh, or not. But even not, I mean, I try to make sure the cart, cart's nicely positioned, you know, and I, I, I have a Hogwarts spell that I put on it called Sticky Willamus, 
and it doesn't usually move. So, you know, I feel okay about this whole thing. Um, and, well, anyway. So, <laughs> but I thought this will be kind of a fun little lighthearted discussion about the ethics of shopping cart return. That post currently has 449 comments on it. Now, let me just say, it's not that hard to get likes on Facebook. Because people, all they have to do is click one thing, right? So, I mean, I, I could post up a, a reasonably good picture of my dog, Declan, and it'll get, it can get 300, 400 likes. Not too hard. But comments are like a whole different thing. Getting 100 comments is a lot. That's a lot of comments. This is 449 comments <laughs> um, about shopping carts. No, it did. There were some sidebars, some side trips, and we got into a discussion of Fifth Element at one point, partly because a, a, a person, a person named Brendan, not seriously compared me to the uh, Gary Oldman character in Fifth Element, um, which was, that's pretty bad. I mean, there's another person who kind of implicitly compared, compared me to Trump, but, you know, and I don't know which is worse. I think I still would rather be Dr. Zorn or whatever his name is. Dr. Zork? What? I don't know what his name is. Um, but anyway, it's a lot. 449 comments. And people, you know, a lot of people took it in the lighthearted way that it was intended. And then some other people offered some interesting insights, including, uh, in one case, a, a parent uh, of special needs sons who, at least one of whom worked as, you know, cart wrangler. And it was like a job that uh, was a good job that he relished and was happy to have it. I think uh, we heard also from another person who pl who places special needs or persons with disabilities in those kinds of jobs, and they're glad to have those jobs. Also heard a couple of things about people who've worked in places where most of their work was indoors, and it was actually kind of nice when it was ro a rotation where they'd get sent outside to wrangle carts, and they were kind of happy to get out in the fresh air, you know, and, and have that job of picking up all the stray carts left by monsters like me. So um, we also heard from some people who, who are happy to get a cart, near their car. Some of them are people who kind of almost need walkers, you know, um, or just have really sore joints and some mobility issues. And so it's great. There's the cart and you can kind of lean on it. You can't bring a shopping cart and a walker into the store at the same time. At least I don't know how you would do that. So th there were some ameliorating factors is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but there were, and there were some people who just, you know, they said, just in a kind of common sense way, well, no, because wind can blow the carts into a car, ding the car, whatever. Uh, but then there were people who like really were taking it very seriously and who I don't think in any lighthearted way were suggesting that this was the sign of a pretty massive moral vacuum on my part. <laughs> that, that, that I could be, you know, like, like in the Egyptian underworld, my heart could be weighed by a jackal-headed god entirely based on, I don't know what the name of the god is, um, entirely based on my handling of this whole cart issue. It was really kind of, I mean, it was, I have to say, it's the best morning I've ever spent on Facebook. And I sort of couldn't stop, you know, like reading the comments and kind of responding to some of them. Eventually, I announced that Big Y had suspended me for 10 years and I needed some time to be with my family. And pe people, most people kind of got that joke. Anyway, um, I don't know. I don't. I ultimately don't know what this says. I think it's not entirely about carts. 
<laughs> I don't think we're here just for the shopping carts. I think we're here, if you know that joke, um, I think we're here for also reasons. People need to judge other people right now. And social media is a great medium for doing it. Oh, and people also need to engage in virtue signaling, uh, which there was a lot of among those 400. I mean, there were just a lot of, you know, I had an operation where my entire spine was removed and replaced by Neko wafers, and I still pushed the carts ideally through a blinding rain back to the cart corral. What's wrong with you, you depraved monster? Um, so <laughs> <clears throat> I just wanted to share that. I mean, we don't need, I don't need to take a lot of calls about shopping carts. I really kind of had my fill. But, you know, if you wanted, if you wanted to, you still could. 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Meanwhile, Keith, Russell, David have all called in. Uh, and we need to hear from women. It's important. 888, one half of the human population. 888-720-WNPR. Call up about anything you want. People inevitably call up about language ticks that they don't like. So I'd be really disappointed. I'm really ready for that today. I did some extra reading. Okay, so here we go. Let's start with Keith in Torrington. Hi, Keith. You're on the air. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Fantastic. It's been ages since I've actually called in. Last time was uh, Brad Davis when I was like nine. <laughs> well, I thought you meant calling in here. Brad Davis when you were nine. That doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. No, no. First time I here. Hmm. Um, but no, uh, this is uh, tangentially um, uh, um, related, I think. Uh, I try to be objective when I get into conversations with people that, are, um, uh, uh, that I'm having a disagreement with. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I like. I was bringing up um, uh, Robert Sapolsky. He's a, a neurobiologist out of Stanford, uh, and he wrote a book called "Behave: The Neurobiology of People at Their Best and at Their Worst." And it talks about how we make decisions, which I'm always interested in. If you ever, if you're familiar with the uh, the idea, the ancestors of all actions are thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then the next question is, well, what are the ancestors to those thoughts? Like, where do those thoughts come from? So he talks about, um, uh, you know, going back, uh, you know, second by second, day by day, what happened through your week that helps you, that, that, that led to you to make a particular decision. Then he goes back to your family, cultural history, ethnic history, going back 35, you know, 100 years, which is really amazing. It's an amazing book. It sounds like it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question how people make decisions. And I think we we flatter ourselves. We all do this, too, that we are rational sure. actors, you know, that basically the decisions we make are, are represent a weighing of alternatives and, uh, and of, of empirical evidence. And we try to make decisions. And in fact, it's just this sure. enormous stew uh, of subjectivism, emotionalism, as you say, family background. One of my favorite mm-hmm. studies was they, they did they studied prefrontal cort- cortical activity uh, in the brains of people making decisions, and they could tell what decision the person was going to make 10 to 12 seconds before the person knew what, or before it entered the actual conscious awareness of the person, they could tell what decision the person was going to make, which means that there's stuff going on. Well, here's my interpretation. It means to me that there's stuff going on in our brains (laughs) that, you know, that we we can't even factor consciously into decision making because it's just happening below our level of awareness. Polsky doesn't even believe in free will. You know, he, he, he believes that our, a lot of our decisions are hardwired because, like, how we make decisions is, is kind of hardwired into us by now. Yeah. Um, well, uh, listen, uh, thanks for that. Was there a way that you yeah. wanted to apply it to anything in particular, or is it just kind of— No, no, it was really just 
like when when I get into arguments with people that 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 don't value like if if I if uh, I don't value shopping cart management as well as the next person, and they're yelling at me and I can't understand why they're yelling at me, it gives me a chance to see things from their perspective. Trying to be objective a little bit, a little more about it. Yeah, uh, uh, listen, a great point. Uh, perhaps it, it could, in fact, tincture the entire rest of the conversation. I can't promise you that every conversation I have for the rest of the hour today uh, that I'll be able to to kind of Sapolsky it, uh, but maybe. Who knows? Um, all right, so let's go. I said women should call in. I'm going to therefore skip towards a, a woman. Here is Kim in Vero Beach. Hi, Kim. Hi. How are you? Good. Well, my take on all of this is I always return um, my carts, and the reason is it's exercise. Yes, and that I is think, true. Uh, I try to park away from everywhere so that I have a nice long walk, and, and I, bring the, I bring the basket back, and it also makes me feel better, too. That, I mean, there's no arguing with that. I mean, there just isn't. I, 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 I think your attitude is admirable. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing cerebral. Yeah, I validate you. I validate you. I, I don't really have a Sapolsky way in there, but uh, I do validate you. Uh, and, and good. Excellent. All right. So we can now, uh, we'll just sort of jump around in the queue here. I don't even know exactly what this call is about, but here's uh, Russell in Brookfield. Oh, right. I, don't, I uh, really don't know about this. Okay, here we go. Okay. Well, I don't take my cards back because I like to help the people who are working uh, for a living doing it. But that's not why I'm calling. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you have experience with the streaming service MUBI, M-U-B-I, and if so, what you think of it? No, I've, I know Tubi, T-U-B-I, but I don't know MUBI, B-U-M-U-B-I. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, M-U-B-I, yeah, streaming service that, uh, boy, I'm not sure I know how to describe it, but it has movies that you're just not going to see anywhere else. Uh, you, they might have been around in the 60s, 70s, 50s. But it's also from many, many other countries. We've seen some interesting movies from South, uh, from uh, Chad, uh, the Middle East, uh, old stuff from North America, uh, lots from France. Uh, movies that are just not constructed necessarily like the, the stuff for mass, uh, that's mass produced. Uh, it may not have a clear beginning movie in or a middle and end. It's just really interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm looking right now. They have Where Does Your Hidden Smile Lie by featuring Terry Lunas and Pedro Costa, a masterpiece about the making of a masterpiece. This crepuscular yeah. portrait of Straub Hue's creative process has been described by Pedro Costa as both his first comedy and his first love story. Yeah, huh. they take stuff out of, uh, of, of a lot of these uh, the big movie festivals and I, there are so many, and they're they're clearly serious endeavors, and that they've never seen anywhere. I wonder how are these made. So and, um, yes, I, I, one thing that I can say about this is that we, you know, we used to do a show for many, many years live from the uh, Berkshire Film Festival up in Great Barrington. We used to go up there every year and go live. And one of the, and so I would go up there and I would see as many movies as I possibly could. Uh, and one thing you become aware of is that there's way more movies being made than you are in a position to see, uh, and that they have a very precarious life. You know, they might get, they might make it to eight different festivals. Maybe somebody grabs it. Maybe somebody doesn't. Maybe movie. Uh, uh, who knows? But um, but yeah, there's. Uh, I think the small budget movie that doesn't do well at Sundance uh, or one of the other big ones. 
um, yeah, it can easily just sort of disappear from sight. And I think Americans are also really bad about watching movies from other countries. So I'm going to check out movie. I can have a seven-day free trial, which I will forget to cancel, and I will have movie for the next 16 years, and it will be your fault, Russell. Well, okay, I'll take the blame. I'd, I'll be curious to hear what you think, and maybe it'll, something will get on the nose sometime. I'd, I'd like to see that. Right. I'm going to think about you every time I look at my credit card statement and think, oh, movie. That's Russell from Brookfield. He's the one who did that to me. And a perfectly happy life before he did that. Uh, all right, here we go with David from Wyndham. Here we go. You're on the air, David. Hi, it's great to uh, be able to say hello and talk to you. Uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to mention. I, one was your comments about Nathaniel. It was really extraordinary. It made me watch it. I hadn't watched it, but uh, I was glad that I did. And I just wanted to let you know, I know that sitcoms are not exactly your milieu uh, from maybe things that you have said, but uh, Jared Carmichael had an NBC sitcom called yes. The Carmichael Show, yep. and it was uh, extraordinary, honestly, some of the stuff that they, they did on that, and I was not really surprised when it was canceled, to be honest, because it was so groundbreaking. Well, I should say well, a couple of things about this. First of all, uh, Rathaniel, we should just, for context, it's on HBO Max right now. It's a stand, it's a sit-down comedy special uh, by Gerard Carmichael. He talks about things that he's never talked about in public before. He brings He's brought to tears. I mean, it's really this, I don't know, but it's really, he's also, I didn't say this on Friday. I think the other thing that you have to sort of say is this is, an unusually good-looking comedian. I mean, he has this smile that just makes your knees buckle and stuff. And most most comedians range from funny-looking to average. That's the continuum. You know, this is a guy who really just is kind of great-looking with this really wonderful smile and stuff. And I think that it helps him a lot in this situation because he needs a certain amount of forbearance. Because at a certain point in the special, he stops he stops worrying about whether we're laughing or not. Uh, he he just right. wants to to deal with all these things. And I think that helps them a lot as well. But the other thing I wanted to say to you, David, is that we are talking about doing an edition of The Nose because we are remiss in not doing this sooner where we just watch network television. You know, like like Abbott Elementary, I think, is something that we're, we're just not talking about and, and people are excited about it and we're too busy watching movie. I think it's it's actually Russell's fault that I'm watching movie instead of network sitcoms. Uh, well, you should blame him then. Yeah, uh, yeah. At elementary school, the uh, the principal is my absolute favorite character. That she is killer. She's terrific. Uh, and uh, I'd also throw ghosts in for you to uh, see if that, that's network uh, TV. And it's a very good. Again, based on a British sitcom, not, not unlike The Office. Well, quite unlike The Office, but uh, it's a, based on a British uh, show. Uh, I, I also wanted to mention to you, uh, was shopping carts, it reminds me of when I was uh, a teacher and uh, the kids would make a destructive mess in my room and I would have them clean up as much as they could, but it was never great. And uh, I said to the custodian one day, I'm really sorry uh, uh, about uh, the mess. And he just looked at me and he said, job security, man, job security. So he took that burden off of my shoulders, and maybe I can do that with you on shopping carts. Nothing can take the burden of the shopping cart uh, from my shoulders. Not today. <laughs> It'll be a year or two before I'm my old self again. I've been through a lot. All right. Thanks for your call. Great call. Uh, there's there's no such thing as an ask or tell me anything in which uh, Dave does not call in from Lake Como, Ohio. People don't know about this, but in Ohio, they have done a total recreation of Lake Como from Italy. In fact, and this is a little known fact, all of the Lake Como scenes in succession were actually shot 
uh, in Dave's hometown of Lake Como, uh, Ohio. None of that is true, but I feel like I'm entitled to my own fake news. All right, what's on your mind? Yes, sir. Actually, I thought it was Lake Cuomo. But it I is Lake Cuomo, that. yeah, but people say Cuomo, yeah. But I did have a nice lunch with uh, a guy who was apparently impersonating George Clinton just, just the other day. So, you know, and because he's part of Lake Cuomo, I guess they figured they needed one here, too. Um, I, a quick comment about the shopping cart thing. I guess if you see a guy coming toward you pushing 20 carts and he's going to get to where you are, you can just mostly leave it. But if the wind is 25 degree, uh, 25 uh, miles an hour or more, you got to put the cart back, I would say. Yeah, I'm actually, I now bring an anemometer with me to the big way. I've learned my lesson. Okay. So, not to get too serious, but I was just curious. When I first started listening to you, uh, you know, looked at your bio briefly, and I saw that you had had some involvement uh, with the Hartford Symphony, so that kind of, you know, made me figure that you like classical music to some degree. So uh, I would I have enough thoughts on this, having been in for the first 20 years of my career, having been a classical musician. Uh, I, I have enough thoughts on it for two pitchers of beer, but I, I would just ask you, what, I'm about your age, or a little, I'm 61, a little younger, but we've seen the same things happen. What, what place, if any, do you think classical music even has in society anymore? Well, it also kind of depends on what we're talking about, too. So, um, I mean, are we talking about sort of canonical, symphonic, and, and, and chamber music? Or are we also talking about kind of new chamber music, new operas, Nicole Muley operas, and, you know, and little quartets that do, you know, I don't know, ligatine, right. but also play Radiohead stuff? I, I feel like, like so many things— you know, like so many things, but classical music especially challenging. Yeah, I did do a lot of work over the years with the Hartford Symphony in a lot of different capacities. And that particular model, you know, the the local symphony orchestra in a mid-sized city, that's a really endangered model. It's really struggling. Uh, and, you know, it needs all the if, – if anybody values it, which people should, it needs all the support it can get. And I do think this kind of music, ranging from the more standard classical fare that you might hear – you know, a, a familiar city you know, symphony orchestra play to the really cool, somewhat more avant-garde, interesting stuff that, you know, that Carolyn Shaw is composing or something. Um, you know, it's it's all, it's like poetry. People think they don't like poetry until they hear some poems and they go, wow, that's really good. Who's that guy? Neruda? I never, he's terrific. You know, and it's sort of like that. If you drag somebody to this stuff, a lot of times they're going to go, wow, I just had no idea. You know, I just had no idea that this was that great. Um, and, and, but I think people, they have too many other choices uh, and they just don't have any real ongoing connection with it. To, so, Dave, to Sapolsky this, I would say that their decision not to go to see classical music is, is composed of a whole bunch of things that are, for the, not, for the most part, not rational choices and maybe based on their family yep. structure, maybe nobody ever took them, you know, whatever. But they're missing out. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, uh, you know, my thought on it is that, that symphony orchestras, and, I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the mid-size in the middle of the country because I was in my last seven years as a full-time musician I was an assistant conductor of one of those orchestras so I know the problems you're talking about but orchestras are shooting themselves in the foot right now because one thing about classical music and you kind of hinted at this is that a big problem with it is it does not truly hybrid with 
anything. I mean, you can have jazz rock, you can have, you know, this or that. But any time that you pair a symphony orchestra with, you know, um, a tribute to James Taylor or, or you know, whatever else it may be on the pop side, basically the orchestra is sitting there playing whole notes, playing a very unchallenging accompaniment, while, of course, 100% of the crowd came to see the pop artist or whomever's, you know, the, 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 the ghost band for the pop artist. And the problem with that, I don't mean to go on too long, is every concert that you take away from the classical music schedule and you replace it with a hybrid thing like that, or, you know, the music of video games or something like that, the people that, you may sell out the house for one of those shows, but not one person from that audience is ever going to come to a concert of Brahms or Tchaikovsky or, or new music. It's just kind of, you know, you see, you give up more ground each time you do that. And the people that come that like the real hardcore music, they're just going to stop coming. Yeah, I mean, I think the other option, you're totally right about this. I don't know. I'm supposed to go to a break right now. This is such an interesting topic. Maybe I'll hold my... I have like... I'll tell you one quick story, which was uh, when Harry Chapin died, I realized that he'd played with the Hartford Symphony. So I, I called up... Wow. I, had, I had to write the obit. Uh, and so I called up and reached at his home, the very aging, at that time, conductor of the Hartford Symphony. I'm not going to say his name. Cause he, and I said, you know, Harry, Harry Chapin has just died, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'm sorry. I don't know. Any, I don't really follow pop music. And I said, no, he played with your orchestra. You, you conducted. And I said a little bit more about him. He goes, oh, that guy, he was terrible. And his charts were awful. And I said, wait, this is an obituary. I'm writing an obituary right now. But, but that's the level of disengagement. Yeah, it's something they have to do to put bread on the table. I will say this, that my impression of struggling symphony orchestras, and it's one that's not just an impression. I mean, I lived through this a few times, is that there'll be these conferences in Cleveland or something, you know, and everybody goes about how to how to be more creative, how to present multimedia Philip Glass stuff or whatever. And it's and, all hogwash. It's yeah. all hogwash. Well, what yeah. what really happens though is the executive director or the managing director or whatever the sort of the business director will go, plus the chairman of the board, and they'll come back and they'll go, "This is great. That's what we're going to do." And then they'll lose their nerve you know, within about four days, and you're back to the 1812 or, or, uh, overture. So anyway, I really have to go. Uh, but uh, thanks for your call, as usual, Dave. Lots of things to think about. Now people are going to ask you to support this insane thing. Well, actually, Kat and I are going to ask you to do that. So we'll be back in just a second. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Many MCs focus in on black people extermination. We keep it balanced with that knowledge of self-determination. It's hot, we be blowing the spots with conversations. Come on, let's smooth it out like soul sensation. We in the house like Japanese in Japan or Koreans in Korea. Had to fill in free Mumia with the Kuji Chagalia true. Singing this swinging and writing this I really like that song, but we don't have time to play it. I have screwed up the clock really bad. So I apologize to the rest of the show. I apologize for the fact the rest of the show is gonna be kind of short. Uh, but we have time to do stuff. Uh, and we have time to take some calls here, and we've got them, and we're going to start with Anne from Hebron. Hi, you're on the air. Well, it's an honor to talk to you, and um, my husband Frank and I are members, so um, I heartily support this program and, of course, all of NPR's um, offerings. But um, I wanted to just bring to the attention of all the listeners um, something that some may have heard of, and that is the, the non-native invasive jumping worms that have recently exploded, I should say, their reports have been exploding in Connecticut, um, especially during the last year or two. Uh, so I was wondering, um, have you heard about them, Colin? I, I did. I feel like there was a public radio report on them, like an NPR report on them, you know, within there, the last five or six days, maybe. There, there was a little mention of earthworms in general, and um, so it is an interesting thing about earthworms in that, you know, there really aren't too many native earthworms um, in, on our continent. But these Asian jumping worms um, are just basically a newer type of um, non-native invasive, and they're much more threatening than the European earthworms, which have been here for hundreds of years, um, to our forests especially, because these jumping worms live in the upper layers of the soil, and they eat all the organic material. So they turn this into a substance that's um, like a gravelly coffee ground. Um, also looks a little bit like a dark um, um, cereal there that is the, uh, I forgot, um, grape nut cereal. And so anyway, this, easily, this is gravelly and dry, and it just easily gets washed in the rain. But um, many native plants and trees cannot sprout in this material. So... Uh, they can't sprout or grow. Right. So, um, by the way, one of our uh, favorite uh, regular guests, although we haven't had her on for a while, uh, is Gail Ridge, uh, who is a, a, an entomologist. And yeah. uh, she has written about the jumping worm. Uh, actually, there's three. The rustic jumping worm, the compact jumping worm, and the large jumping worm. They're all in the same family. They were introduced from Asia, principally from Japan. Here in the United States, they are also called crazy worms, crazy snake worms, Georgia or Alabama jumpers, Jersey wigglers, wood owls, or sharks of the earth. And one of the ways that they got into this country is at the Bronx Zoo in 1948 to feed the platypuses. They were brought in because the Australian platypuses apparently ordered them from the menu. I don't know what platypuses do when they want a spe specific kind of worm, but 
So there's that. Uh, so this right. is it's an interesting topic. I, I maybe we should be doing you know quite a bit more about jumping worms. Well, I I really uh, encourage everybody to uh, learn about this at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, the jumping worm fact sheets. These are written by Dr. Rich, and um, so they can really learn about this. But the important thing is to know that the only means of control is prevention, and uh, the way that they're being spread is through many normal gardening activities. And that's why um, they have spread quite a bit in these last two years because basically it's like a COVID effect where a lot of people have been gardening. And so they're doing things like getting mulch and these um, mulch and compost and things like this where at this time of the year you do not see the jumping worms because they only become adults perhaps in July or August. So right now they are just the cocoons, which are the size and color of poppy seeds. So we do not see them in the, the mulch or compost or soil, even in potted plants. But in any case, um, this is primarily stuff that's coming from other states. And um, when we do spread them, you know, we don't see anything. And we would only find out that we have jumping worms when they're already adults and they've already been multiplying And that's why there really is nothing other than education and prevention because there's really, these are almost indestructible, these these, uh, guys. You persuaded me. All right. We have to move along, but that was fascinating. It's also, it is like COVID, but it's very hard to get the worms to wear the little masks, you know. There's nothing for the straps to go around that easily. Um, All right. So uh, Sharon in Brantford wants to follow up about uh, classical or orchestral or chamber music. And so here she goes. Hi, Sharon, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. I was listening to your conversation about classical music, and I had a couple of thoughts. I think thinking about the performance as if it was a movie performance might help bringing in a younger audience. I'm thinking about having a screen behind the orchestra player's sort of on the order of Fantasia, as Disney did. Right. I mean, that uh, it would be hard to come up with something that hasn't been tried at this point. And Carolyn Kwan, who's the, uh, is the conductor and artistic director of the Hartford Symphony, has been extraordinarily creative with stuff like that uh, and, and lots of other things, too. In fact, she famously did. I mentioned kind of in passing a multimedia Philip Glass performance or something. She has done stuff like that, like that specific thing. Uh, it's hard though. It's hard. It's. It, I mean, stuff like that is great, and you should try it all. And I mean, I've been involved with a number of very interesting. Ex- Some people may remember that a few, quite a few years ago. Now, I wrote uh, a, a sort of a performed series of stage pieces to accompany Liszt's Faust Symphony, uh, and we brought in you know equity actors from New York, including Crystal Dickinson, who's kind of gone on to great fame. And it was really fun. It was a great way to do it, and it was a great way to kind of break up what's really a long symphonic piece. And you know, you try everything, but the truth is, people don't have the habit, and if they don't have the habit, it's hard to give them the habit. Uh, even though I think that the rewards are very big. All right, so we're going to take a break. This will be a very short break, no fundraising, nothing like that. Very short break. We'll come back. We will continue with Ask or Tell Me Anything, 1-888-720-WNPR. Now I'm cheesing when you blow past, yeah. If you take a slice of me, it's all all right with me. Oh boy, you never see the smile in your eyes. 
All right. Time to say thank yous and give credits and stuff like that. Usually, usually, uh, well, on an average day for for more than a year, doing this show is me sitting in the studio that I'm sitting in right now and Kat Pastor sitting on the other side of the glass, and that is about it. Uh, Today, though, we have... An embarrassment of riches in terms of people here. Uh, Cat Pastor's uh, in her usual booth, but Dylan Reyes is uh, running the board. Uh, and um, in the other studio, this is really landmark. Uh, Lily Tyson, who's been our senior producer for quite some time but hasn't been able to come into the building yet, is here in the, in the building uh, screening calls with Jonathan McPants, our other main producer. I, I can't. You can cut the excitement with a knife. Uh, I, I think all of you can feel it out there. All right, so... Uh, we are going to go back to the calls. Oh, did we lost? No, here he is. He's over here. Okay, so I'm going to go over to, is this, Peter looks like he moved to a different place on the board, but I'm going to try it. Peter from Hamden. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, I feel the excitement. Thanks you do, for yeah. having my cough. Um, I just wanted to, well, thanks to your producers too, and yeah, my call got dropped here, but I just had a few quick things first that I was going to say is I'm actually going to stop returning my carts to the corral because you made me think about this. I, I don't like using self-checkout because I want to help those people keep their jobs. And I figured that uh, kind of logic applies exactly to the, you know, how you've mentioned before. So I'm actually going to stop bringing my card to the crowd. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention is, is um, I'm a piano tuner and uh, both my siblings are classical musicians. And I kind of like strayed away from being performance because how that whole scene is and my brother plays in symphonies and my uh, sister is a classical guitarist. So uh, as far as how, you know, the novelty of newer kind of symphonic stuff goes, I I see how symphonies struggle in their normal kind of capacity in a lot of places, even like operas and stuff, try to modernize it. And I don't like you, you know, kind of joking about Philip Glass. I think Philip Glass is great. And I'm also probably younger than the other callers. Um, I think that uh, chamber music, like how my sister plays in classical guitar, is probably coming up and maybe moving away from such large symphonies into something smaller that's more accessible is a good way to reach younger people because I think maybe it's daunting to have, you know, such a large performance with symphonies and maybe it's just the capacity of it. But, you know, in in my opinion, in my point of view, I thought chamber music was a good way to kind of expose people to those kinds of things. And, and, and also in my opinion, I kind of don't like the novelty stuff, but I also think you mentioned something about like cool radio stations that play, um, you know, Radiohead and classical music. Uh, It made me think of Johnny Greenwood, who's Radiohead's guitarist. Mm -hmm. He he writes a lot of great music. I might've heard that on your show even, but he, he's, he's a great, classical musician and maybe it's a little new agey or something but i think expanding on those kinds of things and opening the doors the best way to keep it going and kind of expanding the idea of what classical music can be is you know how you're going to keep people in and not just have it be a flat line right i just want to i just want to clear up one thing i was not casting asparagus on philip glass i like philip glass a lot but i mean he's an example like you know trying to do something multimedia with philip glass i also agree about the chamber stuff uh the best example we have of that where i'm near where i'm sitting is the garmony program uh, at the university of hartford uh, which has brought in i don't know regina carter and room full of teeth and like all kinds of really interesting quartets uh and i also in my family uh my niece and her husband have a, a uh, a duo very much like what you're talking about 
They're younger people, obviously. It's called Boyd Meets Girl. His name is Rupert Boyd. Uh, that's where Boyd Meets Girl. Um, she also has played in something called The Sybarite Five, which we have featured on this show in our studio in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot a lot of the future lies in... But, I mean, The Sybarite Five would be an example uh, uh, of a group that would tackle a ligatee piece but would also play Radiohead. They do also play Radiohead. So I think you have to think differently about repertoire and maybe size and scale and stuff like that. I don't think serious music of that kind is going away. Oh, the other thing that I would say is the best radicalizer is going to be uh, what would be getting people to watch Mozart in the Jungle. Mozart in the Jungle is a really great series. I assume it's still available on Amazon, but... I mean, and and uh, Gail Mar- Garcia, Gar- Gail Garcia Bernal, that's his name. He's so terrific in that. Um, and, and he kind of, in this sort of proxy Dudamel kind of role, gets you really jazzed up uh, about classical music. And you hear a lot of great music, too. And, and famous musicians like Carolyn Shaw make cameos and stuff. So that's a great sort of on-ramp. So I have like a minute and 30 left, right? I have to get out at 55 and something. It's probably here somewhere. Okay, so I'm going to do this. Brandon in Torrington. What? Torrington is like dominating today. Hi, Brandon. You're on the air. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to miss me. So um, going back to what you were talking about before about the shopping carts. One, people will leave shopping carts out in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. No, it's yeah. not good. But tying that into popular culture, uh, Moon Knight, which just came out on Disney+, Plus, the bad Egyptian god there, Ahmet, is the Egyptian god that weighs your heart. So it all ties together. Oh my god, you've done something here, Brandon. You've brought it all together. And I would just like, I I wish I could respond to you in Oscar Isaac's British accent. Ah, Yeah, and and I love, he's so good in this show. I'm going to cut you off, I'm sorry, but you know, I was like, ah, he's okay in Star Wars, but he's great in this show. He's really awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a really weird role. I, I'm only one episode in, and the, the person I live with, I can already tell from the look on her face, does not want to keep going. Uh, but So I might have to go downstairs and watch it or something. But, um, but yeah, I mean, him and Ethan Hawke and, and, and I think Oscar Isaac, you know, when you do these kind of MCU stuff, cinematic universe stuff, you know, I think you sort of get to mess around a little bit more if you're an actor like Oscar Isaac. And, and I think he's having a lot of fun with the role. All right, we have to stop. I hate that we have to stop. Michael, Carl, Willie, Jackie. First of all, I love your first album, uh, Michael, Carl, Willie, and Jackie. It's a great album. But also, I'm sorry. Has been disconnected.